Today's reading is from Matthew 4:18 through 5:12. It can be found on page 892 of the Bibles in front of you, as well as on the screen. It's already there. Good job. This is God's word. As Jesus was walking beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon called Peter and his brother Andrew. They were casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come, follow me, Jesus said, and I will send you out to fish for people. At once they left their nets and followed him. Going on from there, he saw two brothers, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John. They were in a boat with their father Zebedee, preparing their nets. Jesus called them, and immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. Jesus went through Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and sickness among the people. News about him spread all over Syria, and people brought to him all who were ill with various diseases, those who suffered severe pain, the demon-possessed, those having seizures, and the paralyzed, and he healed them. Large crowds from Galilee, the Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, and the region across the Jordan followed him. Matthew 5. Now when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him, and he began to teach them. He said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called the children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. The word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, you know where we've come from. You know our stories, and you know that there are some who find themselves in this room this morning uh, wondering how they ever found their way into a worship service. Uh, Skeptical, wondering, questioning, uh, concerned about what they've seen in the church, yet nonetheless here and hoping to hear a word from you. You know that there are others, Lord, who, whose lives are uh, difficult, who have uh, labored for years to know you, but still find you to be distant uh, and wonder if you'll ever show up, perhaps in ways that you showed up earlier in their life. And there's still others this morning, Lord, who are enthusiastic about what you're doing in their life, enthusiastic about what's going on here at City Life. So we pray this morning that uh, no matter where we find ourselves, that you would find us, that you would meet us where we are, and that you would speak to us through your word. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, I don't know about you, but I, I, I've wrestled over the years with uh, 
with what it means to actually grow and mature as a human being. Uh, I turned 40 last year, and uh, I thought that by the time I turned 40, I'd have this thing figured out. Maybe some of you can relate. Now, sometimes I look back to my 20s and 30s, and I, I think I knew more, and I was probably more certain then than I am today about some things. It's, it's this phenomenon that we all experience to one degree or another. I've talked to a lot of people over the years. I've talked to seminarians studying to be ministers. I've talked to people who I've counseled. I've talked to people in the church, ordinary people from all different places, walks and socioeconomic levels. And they all experience the same thing. There's this kind of desire that we have to grow in our faith. Uh, but so often we experience a kind of futility. And then there are all those books that are out there, right? Hundreds, literally hundreds of books. Maybe you've picked up some of them. I know I have. Three Steps to a Better Life. Seven Steps to a Closer Walk with Jesus. Ten Steps to Greater Intimacy with God. Maybe you know those books. And you've read them. And you find that for a little while they make a bit of a difference in your life. But after a while you find yourself at the very same place again. Wondering... God, where are you? Will you show up? Faced with your own inadequacy, faced with your own disappointment of God. I've been, uh, I've been teaching, well, as Mark said, teaching and pastoring and counseling for almost 15 years now. And uh, over that time, I've reflected some on the Beatitudes. Because what I find in the Beatitudes is not a recipe for how to... How to win friends and influence people. How to grow in your faith and be successful in it. But a vision for a life that accounts for the struggles and the difficulties, and the skepticism, and the doubt that we experience in our lives. So that's what I want to focus on this morning. And I want to do it in three main points. First, I want to reflect on how God finds us. Second, I want to take a look at how God deepens us and finally, I want to take a look at how God sends us out, how God finds us, how God deepens us, and then how God sends us. So let's start with how God finds us. I've always thought it was important to begin with the, the verses that um, precede the Beatitudes. I mean, we, we quickly skip to the Beatitudes, but there's some context there. And the context begins with Jesus seeing a bunch of young boys, a bunch of young fishermen, and... Um, and thinking these might be uh, these might be some good disciples, some good followers for me. And he goes and says to them, "Follow me." And they get up and they throw down their nets and they follow him. Now, have you ever wondered about that? Have you ever thought that's kind of strange? Like, did he for you Star Wars fans? Did he do the Jedi mind trick, right? Like, follow me, and they suddenly went after it. I, I've always thought that that was a bit strange until I began to realize that that would have been common parlance in that day. These were young boys who had a religious education. These were young boys who were familiar with the rabbis of their day. And they knew that if they had successfully completed and excelled at their religious education, that they may have gotten that very invitation from a rabbi to follow him. Now, what we know about these young boys is that they probably didn't make the cut. <laughs> they failed the exams. Uh, and likely they'd be spending the majority of their lives, the next decades of their lives, as fishermen, struggling, doing the very thing that their father did. 
So that when Jesus came to them and said, follow me, something must have jumped, leaped in their hearts. This was, this was a kind of invitation that they longed for. This was someone saying to them, I believe that you have what it takes to be a follower of me, to be a disciple, to walk in my path. And just we, We've got to sort of humanize this sometimes. I, I think sometimes we walk through uh, these passages and we read it sort of as historical data. But we've got to humanize it sometimes and think about what that must have felt like for them to hear this invitation to follow Jesus as young men. And these were young teenage men. And on the heels of that, Jesus does something that I think is really remarkable. In fact, if I were strategizing for Jesus, I would have said, this is a big no-no, but who am I to say to Jesus how to strategize? He takes them out to the largest public ministry event of his entire three-year ministry career. Young boys who have no seasoning, no training, no maturity. And he exposes them to um, extraordinary things. The passage goes on to say that Jesus worked miracles. uh, and, And that there were people that were coming from exotic places, from the north, from the east, and from the south. And again, let's humanize this for a second. Let's read between the lines. These were young boys. And there were people coming from all different kinds of places. And you can imagine, I mean, just think about it. Think about the conversations these young boys were starting to have with one another. Could have possibly have been having with one another. Do you see her? Look at, how, look at how pretty she is. I've never seen a girl like that before. Now, I know we think sometimes we've got, like, this is not in the Bible. So, But these are young boys, Okay. And, and we know, okay, we know that Jesus spent three years with them and they were still screwed up after those three years, right? So, um, I could imagine the kinds of conversations that they might have been having and maybe conversations that they might have had with some of the people that they ran into. Hey, I'm with, I'm with him, uh, Jesus, the great miracle worker. And you know, he said to me that he's going to kind of zap me at some point and I'm going to get his magical powers too. Young boys, not seasoned. And Jesus had thrown them into this public ministry event. And I think very quickly, Jesus realizes that there's something wrong here. There's something going on here. And what you read in chapter 5, verse 1, is that when Jesus saw the crowds, and I suspect when he saw his young disciples having these kinds of conversations and, and in over their heads, he went up the mountain. And after he sat down, his disciples came to him. And then they began to speak. And he taught them. He began to speak. And he taught them. Now, he finds them where they are. He finds them as fishermen. He finds them as young men who likely didn't make the cut in their religious education. He finds them as young men who were probably inadequate in so many, felt inadequate, struggled with self-doubt. And he says to them, follow me. He believes that there's something that could happen if they catch a vision of this larger kingdom life that Jesus is about to talk to them about. And so Jesus finds us where we are. Um, But then Jesus seeks to deepen us. And those are the first four Beatitudes. What I see here in the Beatitudes is that they're broken down into uh, uh, two sets of four. The first four Beatitudes that really seek to expose us to the depth of what it means to grow in grace. And the second four, that get at how we begin to live that, an inside-out kind of movement that goes on here. And Jesus takes them up the mountain, 
And he says, let me give you a vision of what this life of faith is really about. And it's a vision. It's not a three-step recipe. It's not a seven-step, here's the guarantee to a faithful spiritual life. It's a vision. And the vision begins in an extraordinary way. He says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the poor in spirit. And, and when we hear that, we tend to think of blessed are those who are maybe socioeconomically poor, but it goes deeper than that. That word there actually gets at a kind of brokenheartedness. What he's saying is, blessed are those of you who have come to the end of yourselves. Blessed are you when you've hit the end of your road. Blessed are you when you come to a place in life where you, you don't have it figured out anymore. Blessed are the inadequate. What he's saying to these young men is very different than what they've heard growing up, what they've heard from their religious leaders. Uh, from their religious leaders, they heard, you're blessed when you've got it figured out with certainty. You're blessed when you've memorized the Torah and the rest of the Old Testament. You get to follow the rabbi. You get to follow the leader if you've got your faith figured out. And what Jesus is saying to them is, the great prerequisite of faith is that you don't have it figured out. <laughs> get that? There's something going on here that would have been radically shocking to the first hearers. But he goes on. I mean, if that wasn't enough, he goes on. I mean, I think, I'm thinking the disciples are, are hoping that it gets better. If he says, happy are the broken, I, I'm thinking they're hoping that the next seven might be a little bit more optimistic, right? But the second thing he says is, blessed are those who mourn. Happy are the sad, for they shall be comforted. That's happy. That's optimistic, right? No. Happy are the sad? What are you talking about, Jesus? Now, this is, just isn't an invitation to uh, living a depressed life. What Jesus is getting here is something far deeper, far more fundamental. The word there in the original language actually gets at a kind of um, honesty where you take all the yuck in the inside and you bring it to the outside for God to see. What he's saying is you're blessed when you live an unedited life. You're blessed when you're open and honest and raw about what's really going on in the inside. If you know anything about Jesus' ministry, the people he was most ticked off at was the Pharisees, right? The hypocrites who lived double lives. Whitewashed tombs, he called them. White on the outside, pure on the outside, but a mess on the inside. And he's saying, to be disciples of mine, you've got to live lives of integrity. <laughs> There's got to be consistency. And all of that stuff that you carry around on the inside, it's safe, as Mark <laughs> shared this morning, it's safe to bring it to me. It's, it's safe to expose that to me. It's safe for you to bring your inadequacy to, inadequacy to me. See how radically different this is? Particularly when I think about our North American Christian context, which says you're blessed when you're most successful. You're blessed when you've kind of um, kept your behavior in line. You're blessed when you tend to manage your sin well. Jesus is saying, I expect that you're going to blow it. And it's when you come to the end of yourself and deal honestly with me that I'll meet you. I'll comfort you. Well, if that's not enough, he goes on. He says, blessed are those who are meek for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are the meek. And the word that you think of when you hear meek is what? What was that? A ma mousy, right? Or weak. When I hear meek, I think, blessed are the mousy? 
Blessed are the weak, but that's not at all actually what Jesus is getting at here. Again, this word here is a word that was used quite frequently in the first century. And um, it has to do with the process of breaking a horse. Now, I grew up on Long Island. I live in San Francisco. I'm not around a lot of horses. Okay? So um, I've had to rely on others who know a little bit more about these things. And what they've said is that when a horse is born, surprise, surprise, it's, um, it's wild. <laughs> and it needs to come under the conformity, under the uh, authority of its trainer, of its rider. The horse needs to go through a process of being broken so that its strength can um, be focused in a very intentional way. Okay? And so what, what Jesus is saying here is not blessed are the mousy. What he's saying is blessed are you when that wildness that you experience in your life is brought into that strength that is raw and is there and is fundamental to who you are is brought into conformity, brought into focus, brought into intentionality. I'm going to take you, boys, I think he's saying, and make something out of you. Right now, you're young fishermen who are hitting on the girls coming from the exotic Decapolis, you know, who don't have a clue about what it means to live a kingdom life. I am going to make something out of you. I'm going to take all that wild energy and bring it into focus. And then finally he says, Blessed are those who are hungry and thirsty for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the hungry and thirsty for righteousness. And any young Jew living during that day would have said, Are you kidding? We thought that when Messiah came, we'd be filled. We expected that when Messiah came, there would be no more hunger. There would be no more thirst. But what Jesus is getting here at here again is something deeper. He's saying, blessed are you when there's a kind of longing that wells up, a, a hunger, a thirst for righteousness, a thirst for justice that can only come from the heart of one who has received righteousness, who has received love, who known what it means to be met in their very ordinary place, in their very ordinary difficulty, in their very ordinary darkness. Blessed are you who are hungry and thirsty for something more, who don't have your lives figured out. Again, see how this comes into conflict with North American Christianity. This is blessed are you when you have your lives figured out. Blessed are you when you've satisfied, you've been satisfied. He's saying, no, I expect that what part, part of maturity means is that there will be a constant hunger and thirst for more. There will be a deep dissatisfaction. I remember when I was young, I was 17, 18, 19, and I was a, a Christian, and I used to say to people, if you come to Jesus, He'll make your life better. He'll give you happiness. You'll figure things out. And those of you who have lived long enough and have a little bit of gray hair know that that's not how it works. When you come to Jesus, sometimes things get a little tougher. And you find yourself having to go to places in your life, depths of your own soul, that you never expected that you'd go to. That Jesus doesn't just meet you where you are and leave you where you are, but He deepens you. <laughs> and He begins to, to, to work a process of digging and digging and digging and rooting out those things that keep you from really thriving and really flourishing. Part of what's going on here is that what Jesus is saying to these young disciples 
is that there's something that's going to happen not only over the next three years with me, but over the course of your lifetime that where you'll find that with every passing decade, you're going to realize that what you thought you know or knew, you don't know so well. What you thought you had figured out, you really don't have figured out as well as you think you do. The life that you thought you could program for success, the recipe that you thought that you could apply that would give you that victorious Christian life that we all hope for, it doesn't quite work out that way. And what we find more often than not is that Jesus brings us to continual points of utter dependency on Him. Where you say, I can't do it anymore. I continue to fail. I'm 40 years old. I thought I'd have it figured out, but I still don't have it figured out. But He doesn't leave us there either. And that's the last point. He sends us. And these are the last four Beatitudes. He's not content just to do this work on our hearts. What He wants us to do is to move now into the lives of others who are broken, who are needy, who are poor, who are struggling. Maybe even those who have it figured out. And to invite them to this life. He says, Blessed are the merciful, for they will receive mercy. And by now, I think the disciples may have been able to tune in a bit to what's going on. Blessed are the merciful, because what we know is they were shown extraordinary mercy. Jesus met them where they were and called them to himself. And he will continue to show them extraordinary mercy. The language there of mercy and compassion is, is really interesting. Uh, when, when we talk about compassion today, maybe we talk about doing a good deed for someone else. But really the language there gets at a kind of experience where you meet another person in the midst of their pain and literally you're changed because of it. There's something inside of you that is moved in the presence of another's pain. Now, men, particularly those of you who are married, what we often hear is, you're not meeting me in my pain, you're trying to fix me. <laughs> so perhaps this is for you, this message this morning. Jesus isn't saying, I'm giving you the powers to fix people. He's saying, what I want you to do is to meet people in the midst of their pain, just as I met you where you are. And to be moved by it. There's this extraordinary word for compassion in the New Testament that gets at uh, literally our, uh, our whole inner being being moved um, as we come into contact with someone who is in need. Do you find yourself in that place or are you like me? That so often when I see people in need, I'm like, how can I get around this one? <laughs> you know, How can I avoid this difficult situation? Blessed are you when you're merciful because you will be shown even greater mercy. There's this movement outward now. Jesus has begun to share this vision of something that goes on in the inside, but now he's moving outward. He goes on to say, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will be called children of God. And you hear this, blessed are the pure in heart, and you think, well, this seems to fit with the first category. This seems to be more of an internal thing. But what Jesus is getting at here is a kind of integrity of heart. There's a Greek word there for purity, katharizo, and that word is a very interesting word. It essentially means this. Blessed are you when your inner self matches your outer self and your outer self matches your inner self. In other words, blessed are you when you're not living that edited life anymore out of that false self that we all tend to live by. 
Blessed are you when you go out in an authentic way. I mean, I, what I heard from Mark this morning is that's the kind of church he's trying to create. That's the t- kind of community that he's trying to create. A place where when we meet one another, we don't have to live edited lives, where there's a kind of safety to be who we are with one another. When Jesus says, blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God, he's saying, in order to really see God, in order to really know God, it, it's, not about, um, it's not about putting on a false appearance, uh, some sort of glittering image, some sort of way that you think that you could dress yourself up for success before God. It's not about coming to some sort of place where you think you've got it figured out. It's not about sin management. It's not about behavior modification. It's about a kind of authenticity, a kind of integrity of heart that happens because of all those things I just said, those beatitudes that, you know, one, two, three, and four. It's because you've gone through a process of God breaking you. So you can't do this by willpower alone. If you think that you can avoid difficulty, brokenness, struggle in your life, what Jesus is saying is, no, it is inevitable. That's how you grow. I wish someone would have told me that many years ago when I became a Christian. I wish they would have told me, hey, I'm inviting you onto this wild ride. And what you need to know is that it's going to be more difficult than you ever imagined. <laughs> what I heard was that if you, you know, if you, th- this was back in the late 70s, if you throw out your rock and roll records and you live a pure life and you don't cuss anymore, then God will accept you. And purity of heart means something very, very different than that. There's an integrity, there's an honesty, there's a kind of, uh, when you when you meet a person who 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 uh, has this kind of purity of heart, that person rings true to you. There's a kind of authenticity. You don't feel like you're getting a, a falsehood, uh, a false self. It says, "Blessed are the pure in heart." He goes on to say, "Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God." Now, note he doesn't say, "Blessed are the peacekeepers." A lot of us learned in our families growing up how to keep the peace. Some of us grew up in conflicted families, struggling families. I was in a family like that, and I learned how to make mom and dad okay. That's no wonder I'm a therapist now, right? I mean, blessed are the peacekeepers. Blessed are those who go into a situation and say, oh, can't we all just get along? And he says, blessed are the peacemakers, those who are willing to bring in that word peace there is the word in Hebrew, shalom. Those who are willing to fight for shalom for harmony, for a life of flourishing. And when you, when you fight for that, guess what? You may experience some conflict. <laughs> we learn about that in the next Beatitude. That when you live the life of a peacemaker, when you fight for shalom, when you fight for a life of flourishing, what you might find is that you might be saying some hard things to people who might not expect you to say hard things to them. This is not just about cleaning things up and making people happy, and pacifying people who are going through difficulty. It's about saying hard things. It's about inviting them to a newness of life, a life of flourishing. And Jesus is saying to these young disciples, I'm calling you to walk through this process. This vision is for you. As you walk with me over the next years, I'm going to be inviting you to do and say some very difficult things. Now, we know the end of the story, right? We know that at least the men ran away. The women, <laughs> the women stayed behind, right? 
The women were faithful. They stayed with Jesus. All these young disciples, after three years of being with Jesus, who I'd argue is probably pretty good at making disciples, right? He's Jesus. They still ran in the opposite direction. They still denied him. I don't know if that allows you to extend yourself some grace. For me, it allows me to extend myself some grace. That it's a struggle to grow in grace. And that even if Jesus were leading the Newbegin Fellowship, uh, after a year, you'd maybe experience some growth, but Jesus doesn't just snap his finger and say, maturity, <laughs> humility, uh, you, your life is together, purity. He allows us to go through a process where we continually stumble, we continually fall, but he challenges us to stay on that road and to speak out and to call others to it as well. And the final beatitude says that as we do that, we may experience some difficulty. He says finally, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. When you engage in this life, when you move through this inside-out faith, when you allow God to deepen you, and as you now move out into the world and you call other people to a deeper integrity, a deeper faithfulness, what you will find is that uh, relationships get a bit difficult. This is why Jesus said at different times you're going to have to leave your father and mother and brother and sister because this is a worldview-shattering kind of vision, right? That as you live this life, what begins to happen is you take risks that you might not have ordinarily taken. And what we see is that after Jesus leaves and he sends his spirit, these disciples go out and radical things begin happening. We, what we see for the first few hundred years of the church is that people take risks. You think about some of the things that went on in the first few hundred years of the church. Um, people would stay behind in times of famine. Well, everyone else would abandon a, a, a town. Christians would stay behind to be with the people, to care for them in the midst of their disease, in the midst of their struggle. That is... Women threw their baby girls onto trash heaps because baby girls were not wanted, that Christians would run and grab them and adopt them and love them. That Christians demonstrated the health of marriages by staying together when it's so often in that culture, for almost any reason, a man could put a woman out of the house and divorce her in an instant. I mean, what you saw among those early Christians is that they lived lives of boldness and risk and integrity. And what I want to close with this morning is, is, is a kind of vision that I think uh, might even extend to you. Uh, for the past few years, we've been, um, we've been actively working on developing a West Coast seminary that we call Newbegin House of Studies. And a part of that, and the part that we began with, is something called the Newbegin Fellowship. Because we believed that the vision of Leslie Newbegin was that if you change, the world can change. We have enough preachers, you know, we have enough Marks and Nicks and Chucks in the world. But if ordinary people change, and we're not ordinary because we pray all the time, and we're just deeply <laughs> spiritual people, you know, but if, if people who are out there, Doing the work, working, you know, working out there in um, the tech industry and in the arts and in all different kinds of places. If they get engaged with this bigger vision, what, what might change? How might Sacramento change? And part of why I'm here this morning is to say that we believe that what we've seen over the last two years is the Newbegin Fellowship 
has uh, been thriving in San Francisco, and then last year was extended to Berkeley, is that communities are changing as a group of intentional people come together and say, I want to live out this vision of the inside-out life. Now, it's not a recipe. It's not a program that will offer you instant success as a Christian. You're not going to end the program and, and, and be a superstar. In fact, you'll probably have more questions than answers. But there's a kind of honesty that we invite you to, a humility that we invite you to, a, a growing knowledge of, of the Bible and of theology that we invite you to, that we hope will propel you along the way so that you can live this life that Jesus envisions in the Beatitudes. It's for the, the broken. It's for the inadequate. It's for those who find themselves with questions that they don't have answers to because that's where Jesus meets us. But then it's a vision that deepens you and sends you out into your world, world with greater confidence, with greater integrity, so that the city of Sacramento might be changed because of you. And uh, if you are interested in that vision, if you want to talk some more, I'll talk to you afterwards. But I, I, I just think the Beatitudes offer a vision that regardless of whether or not you do the Newbegin Fellowship, what you ought to see here is a vision for your life. That there is no one uh, who is too inadequate. There is no one who has failed too deeply. There's no one in this room right now who, uh, who can say, well, I just don't qualify. I don't look the part. I don't dress the part. I'm not smart enough. Jesus wants to meet you where you are. He wants to deepen you, and then he wants to send you. And that's a lifelong process, and you will struggle time and again. But it's a vision that he calls you to, and he promises by his Spirit to empower you for it. I pray that God might continue to bless this congregation under Mark's leadership to live that life with more faithfulness, to experience that vision, not just for yourselves, but for the city of Sacramento. Let's pray. Jesus, when we think about you finding us where we are, we think of all the things that you might see in us that we have tried to keep away from, uh, not just from others, but from you too. You see our fragmentation, you see our inconsistencies, you see how we struggle and doubt and continually go back to places that we know are bad for us, patterns and behaviors that eat away um, at real growth. Uh, and so we now invite you to begin to work this vision in our lives. We pray now that you would begin to work out in our hearts and in our lives a kind of beatitude vision that deepens us, that stretches us, that strips us of our old selves and, um, and gives us new selves that will thrive and flourish, will challenge others in this world. Would you do that in and through Mark and Nick's leadership here at City Life? Would you do that for those here who will participate in the New Begin Fellowship? Would you do that for all of us? Not just for ourselves, but so that the city might be changed because of this, um, this exciting vision that people have grabbed a hold of. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.